Okay, let me get your attention real quick. I want to say a couple things to those of you who are here for the first time. Um, welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Scott Irwin. I'm the college minister at Sunnybrook. Together, Drew and, and Rachel and I um, work together to make the table. Drew and Rachel work for a campus ministry called Focus, and, and Focus owns this, this building. And so it's basically... Uh, Sunnybrook College Ministry and Focus together make the table is kind of how we describe it, but we, we really work together as one, so you'll, from here on out you won't know the difference. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, so here, here's kind of what we do and here's how we do it. Uh, this year we've been studying through 2 Corinthians, we're walking through it the whole year, it'll take us, it'll take us through till the end of April. Um, and whenever we teach a text, we, we break it up into two sections. The first half, which is what I'm doing, is called kind of exegetical analysis. We're just kind of walking through verse by verse and seeing what does this text mean? What did it mean to them? Um, what was going on in kind of the original setting? What's some of the words and how do they fit? And what's, what's the context, the verses before and after the section we're studying? How does that fit into what we're doing? You're going to see a really good example tonight of how Literary context really makes a difference, really helps us understand what's going on. Um, so that's the first half. The second half is when is Drew, Drew's going to get up and he's going to kind of kind of deep dive into one of the major themes or one of the bigger theological ideas in the text and, and open it up for us and help us see how that applies to us. And so that's kind of how we do it. Because here's our conviction. Um, we think if you spend time in a Bible study in college, we think, we believe that you should leave college with a better grasp, not just of verses of the Bible, not just of certain books of the Bible, but a better grasp of how to study the Bible yourself. So we want to teach in such a way that, when, that it teaches you principles of how to study it yourself. Um, you think probably that one of the greatest gifts that we can give you is is to help you feed yourself on God's Word. So, so that's why we're doing what we're doing and how we do it. Um, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. So I want to give you just a, a picture of, of, what, of what this text is. So we're, we're in 16, sorry, 6, 14 through 7, 1. And here's, here's a little bit of the context of 2 Corinthians. Paul's writing... This letter, it's not the second letter Paul wrote. It's most likely at least the third or the fourth letter that he wrote. We know he wrote more than two. We just don't know how many. We think maybe four, um, which is kind of interesting. And we, don't have, we don't have those, but he talks about other correspondence in, in his two letters. Um, but in this particular one, he's dealing with an issue in the church. He's dealing with a, a group of people within the church that are trying to kind of undermine Paul's ministry, and they're opposing Paul. And they, they, they've bought into this idea that if Paul really was legit, like nothing, would, nothing bad would happen to him. Like everything would go his, his way. They bought into this idea that successful things continue to grow in strength and power. That's, that's how this works. Um, and Paul's continual message throughout the whole, the whole, the whole book is that, um, that ultimately... That God is strong when we are weak. That God is most glorified when, when, when we are small and when we're weak and powerless. Like He shines through even bigger. And ultimately, that's, that is Paul's life. And Paul went through all kinds of stuff. 
and he was persecuted, and he, and he suffered. And, and, you know, we think of Paul as this superhero, but it, it sounds like when Paul was with the church, was with his people, he was just kind of a quiet guy that was, like, really, really strong with, with the pen, but maybe a little quiet and not as assertive in person. And so people didn't take that as like this, he was this great powerful guy. They thought maybe something's wrong. But, but what Paul begins to do in this letter is help them see how his ministry has been significant and help them see why his ministry shows that God has been working through him and ultimately why they can trust him. Because that what they don't want to happen is, what he doesn't want them to do is miss the gospel because they misunderstood him. And that's what we talked about our very last week. They don't want Paul to miss the gospel. Or Paul, sorry, Paul doesn't want them to miss the gospel because they misunderstood him and his ministry. So, that's a little bit of the context leading up to this. The very, the very verse right before the verse we're studying says, widen your hearts. Paul's, Paul's saying to them, he's, he's trying to convince them to trust him. And he says, listen, our hearts have been wide open to you. But you've been closed off to us. And so he says, he ends with this command. Widen your hearts, and it's, it's assumed, to us. Who's us? Well, he and Timothy wrote the letter, but he ultimately means widen your hearts. Open your hearts to God. That's what he means. And then look at the very verse after our section, 7-2. It says, make room in your hearts. So here, here sandwiched right in between these two phrases is our section. And, and it kind of helps you, this, these two verses really help give some parameters for how we understand this text. This is, this is why literary context, the verses before and after the verses that you're studying, really do matter, and really do help, uh, help us understand our text. So, here's what's going to happen, here's kind of the format. Um, you have this, you have a command... Paul's going to make a command here in, in, in 614a. You've probably heard it. I, I almost guarantee you've heard it applied to a, a certain context um, if you've grown up in church. Uh, and then in these verses, which is 614b, so b is anytime there's a, per, a period in, the, in, a, in a verse, it's the second verse or second sentence, I guess. He'll ask some rhetorical questions. And these rhetorical questions are ultimately emphasizing this command. They're also going to point to this next part, which is OT promises. He'll, he'll, he'll rattle off some questions that emphasize his command. And then the last question is going to help him transition into these, these, these Old Testament promises. He's pointing to the promises of God. Now, in, in this section... There, there's more than just promises, but that's ultimately what, what, what he's going to focus on. And then these promises are going to point to his last command, which is ultimately a restating of his first command. And that's, that's how I think this works. So Paul's going to give a command. He's going to ask some questions, kind of rhetorical questions that emphasize it, and then he's going to transition to these promises of God that point him to this command, which is really just a restating of the, of the first one. So here's, here's what I mean. Let me read it all, 
and then I'll break it down little by little. Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Transition. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and, so- and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, this, um, this command in 6.14, um, do not be unequally yoked. Okay, It's kind of a, you've, I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, um, I, I, uh, I learned that this is a, a, a richer idea than I expected. I thought it was somewhat straightforward. I'd always heard it pointed to or likened to, you know, two oxen that are yoked together pulling a plow, okay? And, and that's this idea of a yoke. It's not a word we use. It's not something I see on a regular basis. Maybe those of you who grew up on a farm, maybe you still have oxen that you yoke together and pull behind with a plow, Maybe. I'd love to know that if that's true. That'd be awesome. Um, but most likely not. So it's kind of an it's kind of a archaic word, but we, you get the idea. You know, two oxen are stronger when they're pulling together than, than if they're on their own pulling in different directions. And so when I got into understanding this word, I found out that it's a little more complicated than that. Um, it's, it's the only time this word appears, and so there's not a whole lot of verses that we can compare and say, okay, well, how else is it used and this and that? So it's the only time it appears, and so you're just limited on some understanding. But, um, so there's a couple different opinions. One, one um, commentator said that the word, is this particular word isn't, isn't connected to, so this idea of, do, um, of being, of don't, you know, of yoking oxen together, there's actually a verse in Deuteronomy 22 that talks about um, prohibiting a calf um, and a donkey being yoked together, and and so one commentary said, like the the, the word that's used in. Okay, so the Hebrew was written in, the, the the Old Testament was written in what language originally, Hebrew, and then they translate it to Greek, which is called the what? Anybody know? Septuagint. Okay, so so we have the the Old Testament in Greek, and so they take those Greek words, and they mash it up with some New Testament Greek words, and they go, that word wasn't used in Deuteronomy in the Septuagint. It wasn't used, so it's probably not the, it's probably not the same thing. And then another commentary says, well, the, the word might not be used, but this particular idea is kind of a, a phraseology that would have been associated with that particular verse. And, and I, I, I lean on this, this, this last phrase, so I kind of, basically, I took the long way around to get to where I started. Um, it is, I think it is this idea of being yoked together. But not just because two oxen are stronger 
if they're yoked together and going in the same direction. But because the, the particular verse in Deuteronomy 22.10 is describing a calf which is clean and a donkey which is unclean being yoked together. The idea was more about to, an unclean and a clean being connected. It, it, was, it was something that God is, was teaching in, his, uh, in the law. It was something that God it was consistent with His character. He didn't want them... He never wanted the people of God to, to, to marry other, other nations. He wanted them to be separate from. He wanted them to be kind of um, holy to himself. And so this idea of mixing clean and unclean was something that was consistent, and I think that's what Paul's getting at. It, it also The word also carries with it this idea of allies um, as well. So the word unbelievers has, has some nuance to it as well. The, the word unbelievers, uh, 13 other times Paul uses it, it's referencing, it's always referencing someone like outside the faith or outside the church. But in context here, in, in 2 Corinthians, it seems like Paul's using it maybe a little different. He might be using it, and most likely, and I think, I think he is, he's using it to refer to those maybe inside the church that are opposing the gospel. And, and that's a big deal to Paul. In fact, Paul has really, really strong words for anyone that opposes the gospel. Almost stronger words than he has for like, like the, the Roman Empire or like the emperor or those in power that were oppressive and abusive. Paul has his strongest words, saves his strongest words for those who try to change the gospel or um, oppose the gospel. Um, and, and so I... I want I want you to read a couple of them. Somebody turn to Galatians one nine. Who who would read that for me? Galatians one nine. Okay. Someone else, Galatians five twelve. Okay? And then someone second Timothy two twenty four through twenty six. Okay. Galatians one nine. I say again. What we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcome, let that person be cursed. Okay. Galatians 5.12. This, yeah, this one might need some explanation, but go ahead. Yeah. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate myself. Yeah. So, Paul's dealing with a, a situation where um, people wanting to change the gospel in that they're wanting to say, no, in order to be a Christian, you not only have to accept Jesus, you also have to become Jewish. And you have to be circumcised, you have to practice these, these, rich, these dietary laws, these rituals. So he's saying, he's, so they're called the Judaizers, they were going around and make sure Gentiles were circumcised, which is a really awkward conversation, by the way. Um, yeah, you can come in. Wait, wait, wait. Lift it up. Um, so I don't know. I don't know how they do. Um, too far. Too far. That was not in my notes. Um, so, so he says. Paul says. You know what? The, he says. You know what I think about those people? I wish they would just chop it off. Like don't just don't stop by snipping. Just cut all the way. Just emasculate themselves. That's that's what Paul's saying. It's pretty strong words. Second Timothy two. Yeah. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Yeah. So his, his ultimate hope is, I mean, he, he wants to go against these people ultimately so that they'll turn and, and change their mind about opposing the gospel and turn to Jesus. I mean, that's his heart. But like I said, he's got strong words for them. And, and he, he'll, go, he, he'll talk more in, in chapter 11. Um, he'll say some pretty strong words for them as well. So, so, so Paul here is saying, do not be unequally yoked with these unbelievers. And I believe he's describing those who are in the church opposing the gospel and opposing him ultimately, which is pretty interesting. So, um, this verse, I think, has so rich um, because what context have you heard this applied to most? Relationships, okay, maybe dating, um, marriage. I mean, I, I think it, it's not, that's not the, the immediate context that this is describing, obviously. It, are there implications in that area? Yeah, I, probably, yes. Um, the more you... The more you are in relationship with somebody and influenced by them, the more, you know, the saying is true. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. You know, show me who influences you and I'll, I'll be able to help you see who you will become. It's kind of how it goes. I mean, it's just, it's just the truth. But, um, but how far do we take it? Because I've heard, I've heard men talk about um, businesses like they shouldn't own a business with an unbeliever. I like him. He's just not a believer, so, and he's really smart, and he's really good at this, but he's not a believer, so we can't be in business together because of this verse. Or, you know, what about, what about neighborhoods or, or friendships? Or, I mean, how far, how far do you go? Like, how far do you say, nah, we're really not allowed to be friends because you're not a believer? And like, at some point, it gets kind of crazy. It gets, it, it, at some point, it, it kind of goes against other verses that Paul will say, uh, you know, live at peace with people. Um, share the gospel. Be a witness. You know, be good news at all with, you know, if at all possible, um, be, live at peace with, with all men. You know, so Paul will say other things as well. And I think this, this verse can be blown up sometimes, but also there's a lot to be taken in because we are easily influenced and we need to think through our relationships. We need to think through his, who's influencing us and, um, and maybe, maybe Drew will get a little bit into that as well. So, Paul is now going to go into these five rhetorical questions and show ultimately how ridiculous it is that believers and unbelievers are yoked together. And so he says, for what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness? Paul is defining righteousness, not just, being, not just as being right with God, but also as living right before God because of what he's done. Because he he puts lawlessness or wickedness as other translations and righteousness on opposite ends. He says, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Um, light and darkness aren't just light and darkness. They're, they're like moral designations. They're um, a person of the light is somebody who is, who is new in Christ, who is walking in the Spirit, who is obeying Jesus. And, and so light and darkness can't just hang out together. There's either darkness or there's light. Light exposes darkness. Those two things can't just coexist. He says, um, 
What accord has Christ with Belial? That's a strange word. That's a strange word. Here's a stranger word. Hapax lagamanon. Okay, you're going to say this with me. Ready? Hapax lagamanon. One more time. Hapax lagamanon. Now, if you're new here, you think we are the weirdest group of people. Um, so that is a, that's a term describing... The, 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 the word literally means, in Greek, it literally means um, something that has only been said once. And so this comes up sometimes in literature where an author writes and they use a word um, that they, they don't use anywhere else in any of their other literature. And so we have no other way to compare what these words mean. So Paul has six of these words in this short little section. Six words that he only uses once and he never uses anywhere else, and we don't find them anywhere else in the Bible. And so because of that, we, we have to go, okay, we have to look outside the Bible to see how they're used in society or, or in, the, in those times. And this particular word, Belial, was used by this um, Qumran community, which is it's a location near the Dead Sea where a community people lived, and they, and they wrote, and they were kind of a religious sect, and we know that they were a religious sect because anybody know what famous scrolls came from there? The Dead sea I gave it away. So Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1940, what do I have, six? Yeah, 1946. Some shepherd, he's in a field, throws a rock or he slings a rock or whatever he does with a rock. I don't know. Um, into a cave and he hears, whoosh, hears like pottery shatter. I'm like, that was strange. Climbs up in there, looks down in there, sees all these, all these pots with, with these ancient scrolls in there that date back like to 170 B.C., like 2,000 years before. And, and then so for the next 10 years, archaeologists start digging around. They find 12, I think, different scrolls and, and a lot of scripture from the Old Testament that's found that matches up almost identically. I mean, not almost, like 99.99999% with what we have, which is incredible. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of great stuff came from that. But this Qumran community wrote uh, lots of different things, and they used this term, Belial, to describe Satan. It was kind of a strategic word that they would use to describe him. Um, the opposer, Satan. And so he, he says, what, what accord has Christ in Belial? Um, in fact, the word accord is a hypoclagomenon. Um So here's the... Here's the the words that are used. Unequally yoked is one of those. Um, accord, belial, share, agreement, and defilement. All those words are all words that aren't used anywhere else that we, we don't have. So, then he summarizes. How can, a, how can a believer and an unbeliever share a portion together? How, what, what do they share together? So he's kind of summarizing this original command. And then he uses this next one to transition to the next. Um, which, actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So I want to, want to point out something. So notice that Paul is clearly stating there are certain things that oppose each other. There are certain things that can't exist together. They can't be united. They can't be yoked together. Um, and so, I mean, think about that. The goal, like it's not possible, first of all, for everyone to get along, okay? Um, or, there, you know, you see a bumper sticker that says coexist. Um, I, I understand what they're saying. Um, I think they're saying we want everyone to get along, which I agree. Um, that'd be great. It's not possible, but it's probable. Not possible. I don't know. It's one of those. It's probably not the other. 
but it's not going to happen, is what I'm saying. Um, now, I, there's all kinds of things. I think we should treat people the way God has, you know, called us to treat people as, as image bearers and with respect and dignity and all that stuff. But, but there are certain ideas that just are never going to coexist. There are certain belief systems and, and ways of life that just aren't going to match up. They're vehemently opposed to each other, and that's, that's just life. Like, um, we, we seem to, have, like, Westerners have a problem with it. Most of the rest of the world doesn't, and they get it. Um, but Paul's clearly saying, like, these things don't go together. And they're not, they're not going to. And they can't. In fact, when they, when they attempt to is when, I think, bad things happen, is, is, I think, what he's describing. So, I want to move on from there to this transition question um, into this next point. And so, he's going to ask this question. It's going to describe, basically... Uh, God's presence in us through this new covenant. It's a, it's, it's a, a, this idea of a new covenant, this new, new covenant ministry that he started talking about a couple chapters ago. So he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols, right? So the temple of God is a place, the very place where God would dwell, his presence would dwell, and the presence of idols wasn't fathomable. Like, like there's no possible way an idol would be allowed in or be able to exist in the temple. And then he goes on. For we are the temple of, God, of the living God. And then he's about to quote from, we think, um, six, six um, he's going to quote parts of six different Old Testament verses here in this little section. And so he knows his Bible pretty well. He's going to take snippets from like six different verses and kind of summarize them together and, and make this statement. I will make my, this is quoting God, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Uh, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing and then I will welcome you and I will be father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So notice there are, there are three indicative statements about God's describing Himself and who He is and, 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 and what He will do. He says, I will make my dwelling and I will be their God and they will be my people. So He's describing who, like, his, who He is and what He's going to do and who we are. Then He gives us three commands. Go out from their midst. Be separate. He's given the, the Israelite people. Be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing. And then He gives three promises. Like, here's, here's our relationship. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I promise if you do it. These three promises. I will be a father to you, um, and you will be sons and daughters to me. I missed one. I will welcome you. That was the first one. Okay? So, notice, notice God describing um, His presence and His relationship. Um, he describes His presence as, as dwelling with, with them, walking among them, welcoming them. And he describes his relationship with them as, as their, uh, I will be their God, they will be my people. I will be your father, and you yourselves will be sons and daughters. Like this is the God of the Old Testament. A God who is present with his people. A God who defines his relationship and um, pursues his people. A God who describes himself as both God, Yahweh, Lord, but also Father. And, and it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. 
There's also notice this adoption adoption language that's that's in here that that God uses throughout the scriptures to describe his relationship with us. He's inviting us in. He's he's adopting us into his home, into his life. And this these promises as Paul writes them, these promises were for the Israelite people, but Paul's using them to point out, listen, because of Jesus, these now extend to you. Like and they extend they extend to us. So, um, but there's a but. Uh, because, because God's relationship with him, even though God was the one who was faithful to his promises, even though, even though God was going to continue to be um, faithful to fulfill his covenant, his end of the bargain, always, not because of anything we do or they did, but because of himself. He also set it up to where when you choose to walk away from it, like when you choose to um, open your heart to the wrong things or, or be closed off to Him, then, then there becomes this separation involved. And so this covenant relationship and ultimately redemption is given with this, with this kind of stipulation of separating yourselves from the world. That, that seems to be pretty clear. Um, this idea of holiness, God says, be holy for, because I am holy. This idea of holiness is, um, holy, holy is basically uh, to be set apart to and for God. Being set apart to and for God. And that's what His people were to be. And that's ultimately what He's calling us to. So and then v- verse 7, 1, He ends with this command, listen to the, the tenderness of Paul as He pleases. That, that's the other thing I've loved about this book is, Paul is takes this position of father and he warns his children sternly, but then he pleads with them to turn. All right? He warns them of what happens if they continue, but then he pleads with them to come back. He says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. There's the command. Let us cleanse ourselves. Notice that Paul says we, and he says ourselves. He's, he's including himself in. He's, he's, under, he's like saying, listen, I, I'm in this. We're in this together. Let's do this together. Cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So, um, I heard one, I read, one commentary said it this way. Those who hope in God's future redemption purify themselves in the present. Again, Paul is pointing to these promises we have in God. And he says, because of those promises, this is why we act the way we act. Because of who God is and what He's done, this is who we are and this is now how we should live. And this process of being set apart to and for God progresses to completion through present action based on future hope we become more and more like Christ, more and more set apart to Him and for Him as we act in the present with a future hope in mind. So, to sum up, um, Paul says, he, he gives a couple, man, couple commands at the end of chapter 5 that I want to I highlight. Look at 5.20, right in the middle. Paul says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Okay? That's a command. He's, he's, he's imploring, he's pleading with them. 
Look at, look at 6.1. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So, for Paul, to be reconciled to God and to receive God's grace has both a positive and a negative result. The positive result is it means, that having, it means having an open heart to God, an open heart to His gospel, an open to, and willingness to follow Him. The negative is it means being closed off to and separated from those who reject the gospel, from worldly ideas and, and philosophies or beliefs that would lead us further away from Jesus. So it, it's both. It means opening up to Him and it means being separate from the world. Okay. That's it. Paul, uh, Paul, not Paul, him, the hairy guy, Drew, um, he's close to Paul. Uh, he is going to get up here in a little bit and talk a little more about um, this temple idea and why, this, why what Paul says is such a big, huge concept. So take a few minutes and then he'll get up. To it. Hey, if you want to sign up for that, Rachel, uh, find her afterwards, and, and you, we'd love to have you come along with us. Here's what's really cool. John mentioned something pretty, pretty amazing there that we're going to be talking about this weekend, this encounter in Exodus 34, where Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. I want to see all your glory. And, and that is an amazing story for a couple different reasons, but here's one of the ones I want to emphasize tonight. Nobody else in the Old Testament would ever think to ask for that. N- nobody else does. Nobody, nobody wants that in the Old Testament because they know something. In Judges 13, when uh, this guy by the name of Manoah and his wife, uh, Manoah will soon be the father of Samson, this man shows up to, to tell Manoah and his wife that, and it just so happens that this man is not a man. It's actually the angel of Yahweh, which in the Old Testament is often the spokesperson for Yahweh. And when he shows up, he's kind of like, it's, it's like God is there. It's like his prayer. He's there on God's behalf. And so kind of like he's there. And, and in the moment when Manoah realizes that this is not just a man when he's actually the angel of Yahweh, um, Manoah freaks out. And, and he turns to his wife and he says, we're going to die. We're both going to die. It's not a happy thing. He didn't ask to see the angel of Yahweh. He was scared to see it. Uh, Isaiah has this vision in Isaiah chapter 6 in which he's in the temple and the glory of God appears in the temple and all these um, angels come in and they start singing about the great holiness of God and Isaiah does not say in that moment, this is beautiful, this is amazing. No, what he says is no, 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 this can't be happening. His actual words are, woe to me. It's not a happy moment. He says, this can't be happening because, he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst an unclean people. And what he, he knows that what the angels are saying is true. That Yahweh, God, is holy, holy, holy. And that he, as a man, is not. He is sinful. And therefore, if he stands in the direct presence of God, he will die. He can't be there. Just a short time before, Moses 
asks to see God's glory. This is kind of crazy. Um, that's Exodus 34. In Exodus 19, you have the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And God tells the people to come to the mount on this day. But before they do that, they cleanse themselves. They bathe. They wash their clothes. They make sure they are ritually clean. And then they come. But he tells Moses, set a marker around the border of the mountain so that no one comes too close to it. Because I'm going to come down on that mountain. And if when I come down on the mountain... If anyone, man or beast, touches that mountain, they will die. Just like that. The people know that. It's because of God's holiness. Which, which when we talk about holiness, we usually think kind of like morality and righteousness. And it is those things. But, but when we say that God is holy, it's actually much more uh, big than that. It's more encompassing. As, as Scott talked about, being holy means to be like set apart, and that's what it kind of means, that God is, when we say He is holy, we mean He is the opposite of everything else. We mean He is completely distinct and separate from everything else, and so He's not just holy because He's more moral or righteous. His love is holy in that there is no other kind of love like His. His grace is holy. His, his wrath is holy. And the holiness of God is so big and so amazing and so powerful that it kills. It kills sinful, unholy people when they stand in the direct presence of that. Not because God's mean. It's not what's happening in Exodus 19. It's not mean that the sun is so powerful that if something flies into it, it gets incinerated. It's just that the sun is too much for that thing. And that's what God is to sinful people. Too much for us. And they recognize back in the Old Testament that they cannot stand in His presence without dying. Not in His direct presence at least. But here is the tragic irony. That even in the Old Testament, people aren't wanting it, but, but they want it. That, that people, even though they can't, they, they actually desire the presence of God. And the reason why is because that's what we were made for as human beings. We were made for His presence. And so the very thing we long for in our heart of hearts, the very thing we want the most, will kill us if we have it. And this is the paradox. This is the tragic irony that is playing its way out through the Old Testament. But there is a solution. A solution that God gives right around that time, actually, of encountering Moses and when He comes and gives the law. And it's this, a giant tent that they call the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place that will allow God's presence to be with His people without them being consumed. He comes and He dwells amongst them in the tabernacle, but He is not with them in the way that we're talking about, in the way that Moses was asking for. He's with them at a distance because He resides not just within the tent, but in this back room that they call the Holy of Holies. And no one is allowed in there except for one man, one time a year. And only after that person has been ritually cleansed, the high priest is allowed to go in. And so He sits at a distance. He is only accessible by a mediator. And he is only accessible by a constant reminder of his holiness and our lack thereof. That no one is allowed to go to that tabernacle if they are ritually unclean. That, that when they go there to offer a sacrifice, even the high priest, when he goes into that holy of holies, where the presence of God dwells above the Ark of the Covenant, uh, he has to sacrifice a bull on his behalf to cover his own sins. Still, the Israelites love this. 
They love this, and they love the future version of it, um, which is a building at the time. It kind of has these little wings off of it, but um, the temple that's built in around 900 B.C. by Solomon. I think started in 930, probably finished around 900 B.C. <coughs> they love this so much you'll read in places like Psalm 84, which will say, um, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty, Yahweh Almighty. And my soul longs and it faints to be there. It says, Better is one day in your courts, that is the temple courts, better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be there. Even though, me, even though he's somewhat at a distance, but what makes this beautiful is this is the place where sinful human beings can encounter a holy God and not die doing it. That they can come to be with God where they want to be, where they long to be in their hearts. Sometimes the Israelites um, misused this temple. Uh, Oftentimes they thought of it as almost kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because, you know, we got the, temp- the temple. That means God's with us. That means God's on our side. So uh, many of them would sometimes begin to live kind of however they wanted to. Jeremiah 7 accuses them of this. You think because you have the temple of the Lord, because you go there and you make your sacrifices, that you can live however you want and you keep calling out. This is what I, Jeremiah says. You keep saying, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, as though that makes you safe. He says, you cannot turn this house into a den of thieves. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because another person said it 700 years later when he was kicking people out of the temple. A den of thieves being a place that a person can go do wicked things and then they can go hide out in there and think that they're safe. Jeremiah says the temple is not that for you. Sometimes the temple is not just misused, sometimes it was abused. In one of the darkest moments in Old Testament history, the king Manasseh, actually went as far, well, actually, I'll just read it for you. This is from 2 Kings 21, verses 3 through 7. This is what it says, that Manasseh was probably the most wicked king in Judah's history, because it says in verse 3, for he rebuilt the high places, that is, places to worship um, false gods, that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And here's the incredible part. And he built altars in the house of Yahweh, the temple, of which Yahweh had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of Yahweh. So not just in the front room, but in that holy of holies where no one is allowed to go but the high priest, Manasseh waltzes in and flaunts pagan altars to false gods and puts them right there in the presence of God. And he says... He also burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which Yahweh said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. So Manasseh goes and he puts... Uh, a Shuripol and these altars to false gods in there. And the writer will go on to say that Manasseh, in doing those things, did more wicked things than even all the pagan people who lived in Israel before him. All the people that God kicked out because of their sinfulness said Manasseh did worse than that because you do not take something holy and sacred like the place where holy God meets sinful man and pollute it with your altars and with your idols. You don't do that thing. 
So because they misused and abused the temple over time, in 586 B.C., the temple gets destroyed when Judah gets conquered by Babylon. And it sits there empty for some time until about 520 B.C., so in 520 B.C., the exiles are allowed to come back and they begin the rebuilding project and they rebuild the temple. But it's not nearly as big as Solomon's temple. It's this little bitty thing. And then years and years and years go by and Herod the Great in 20 B.C. decides, I'm going to rebuild this thing. He actually, he just expands it. They don't tear down the old one. They kind of end up doing it in the end, but he just calls it an expansion and he makes it enormous and huge and and even bigger than the one that Solomon had built all those years ago. It took forever. It was completed. Actually, the main point, they actually worked on it from 20 BC until 63 AD. Um, But the main portion of it to make it like completely usable was done by 4 BC shortly before he died. Okay, this, uh, this new temple. But here is kind of the crazy interesting part is um, just before that temple gets born in 4 BC, the replacement for that temple had already come. The new place where God meets man looked like this. Because John 1 tells us in verse 14 that in 4 BC, some think maybe 6 BC, somewhere between 6 and 4 BC, that the Word of God, that is Jesus, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is, the new temple came. The new place where holy God meets sinful man is now walking around. And in the very next chapter, Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple and the religious leaders go to him and they say, tell us why in the world you think you have the authority to do this. Who do you think you are? Give us some kind of sign to to, to try and prove that you have the authority to come in here and start throwing things around in the temple. And this is what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. Destroy this temple, and in three days I I will raise it back up again. And that angers them. Angers them because they go, you know how long it's taken to build this thing? You think you're going to knock it down and then build it up in three days? Not only that, they consider it blasphemy for Jesus to talk about, like destroying temples and stuff like that. So they get angry. They'd have been really angry if they knew what he really meant. Because he's not talking. It says in John, he wasn't talking about the building he was standing in. He was talking about his body. That's the new temple. This is the place where holy God meets sinful man without sinful man dying. Is in this new man, Jesus. Fast forward um, uh, a little over 50, around 60 years, and you get this more audacious claim. And that is that this is the new place. This is the new, new temple. Paul says it first in 1 Corinthians, and then in 2 Corinthians, we read it tonight, that You are the temple of God. You are the new building, the place where He dwells, that the church as God's people is the dwelling place, is the place um, where uh, where God resides. Do you know how many times in the Old Testament it is said that God's people, the Israelites, are the temple of God? Zero. Never. No one would ever think to say that the people of God would be the place where God dwells within them. It's it's like saying, I'm going to take the sun and put it inside of you. Everybody would go, that's crazy. You can't do that. You can't cram the sun inside a person. And even if you could, it would kill them in the process. So no one would ever think 
to talk about God coming and living inside of people. But not anymore. Because of what Jesus has done in dying on the cross, it makes everything that was in me, that made it impossible for me to be near God, all of that is taken away. All of my sin when I place my faith in Jesus, all of my guilt, all of my shame is removed so that now I can be considered holy and a rightful dwelling place for God. Where can sinful people go to encounter a holy God today? The answer, if you're a Christian, is you. That's where sinful people meet a holy God without dying. That's where they encounter him as he is. And that's crazy talk. That's audacious to be able to make a statement like that. And so now can you see how sick and how perverse and how gross it is to say, the holy God of the universe dwells in me and so does the pornographic scene from Game of Thrones that I saw last night. Do you see how wicked and awful how atrocious it is to say that the God who made everything we see and everything we can't see resides inside of me, and so does a greedy heart that keeps running after other things because that God's not enough. You see how sick and wrong it is to say that absolute purity, God himself dwells inside of me, and so does the sexually immoral behavior that I practice with my girlfriend or boyfriend. And so does the bitterness and rivalry that I have towards my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like Manasseh dragging idols and altars into the middle of the Holy of Holies. You can't do that. That can't be, says Paul. He says in here, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And the answer is none. There's nothing that makes sense about those things being in this body. And I should say that more like the the Bible does talk about the individual body being a temple, but more commonly it talks about us, the church as a whole being a temple. And the reason I can be a temple is because I'm a part of the bigger temple. And it does not make sense for that kind of behavior, for that kind of heart, for that kind of sinfulness to dwell in the middle of the temple of God. I know... As you studied it, as you heard Scott talk about, when what Paul's primarily talking about here is the false teachers. Do not dwell with unbelievers, right? So where are you getting this whole idea about sinful behavior? Well, what Paul's dealing with, the, the, the reason he's angry at them for um, yoking themselves up with these false teachers is the influence that they're having on them. It's, it's not, as Scott said, the point is not that you have to cut yourself off from the world. The point is not that we need to separate and do our own thing completely apart from people. As, as one commentator says, Paul is not concerned about the church being in the world. He's concerned about the world being in the church. And I'm afraid that there is a lot of world in us. I'm afraid that there's a lot of world in me. And I'm afraid that it is so in us that we can't even see it. That we are inundated with it. That it enters us every day from a thousand different places and we're so used to it. It's so a part of our lives that we might not even realize that it's happening. That we've dragged pagan altars into the middle of the Holy of Holies. 
And, and not only is it hard for us to see, I think sometimes we don't want to see because it is so natural for us to want to fit in to the world that we live in. To not stand out, to not look weird, to not look um, out of place. We, we so want to be relevant. We so want to be a part of the things around us that is easy to go along with what the world says. We want to be far enough away from the world to feel good, but close enough to feel comfortable far enough away from what the world is doing so I can feel good about myself because I'm not just like them, but close enough to it that I don't have to feel uncomfortable living around people in this world, that I can still feel like I kind of fit in. I want to illustrate this, and I've actually, we've done this here before, so a number of you have seen this, but I think this is so perfect, and it's not my idea. I stole it from somebody else. Um, But what I want to do, I want to have uh, Alec and, and Ryan come up here. Okay? So... I I get to be the church. You get to be the world. Ryan, of course, can be, I'm not saying you're God, but he's going to represent God, okay? So here's what happens. Move this way a little bit, okay? So this is what happens for us as the church. You can come here too, all right? This is what often happens with us as the church, is I know that I'm not supposed to be like this. This is not what I'm called to be, that I'm supposed to be with God. And so what I like to do is keep the world at arm's length because I know that that's the right thing to do, but you need to know this, that the world is never, ever, ever moving towards God. It is constantly moving away, and what I think often happens to the church, and what often happens to me, is as the world continues to move away from God, I keep going, but I'm not like them, but I'm not like them, and I keep my distance as I move along with the world. That, that I'm doing even today, that I'm watching the kinds of movies that like sinful worldly people wouldn't have dreamed of making in the 50s. That I'm, that I'm living in ways with my girlfriend, or, or if you're a girl living in ways with my boyfriend, that a that hundred years ago, a non-Christian wouldn't dream of living like. But I'm not like the world is today. I mean, they're way down, but I'm, I'm keeping my distance here. And what I do is, again, this, what this does is it allows me to feel good about myself because I'm not like them, but it also allows me to feel comfortable because I can stay kind of close. I can kind of be close enough to everybody to, to fit in, to belong, to connect. And what's happening is I'm defining my holiness by my distance from the world rather than my nearness to God. And this is how holiness is defined by being like God, separate from everything else, like God. Now, trust me, you're going to be different from the world, but if this is all your definition is, by the way, it's possible, actually, to walk further and further away from the world, but I could actually get myself away, but not be getting any closer to God. It's called being a Pharisee. Pharisees knew how to be way different from the world and still be far away from God. So you guys take a seat. Thanks. This is what I believe we often do as the church. We want to remain comfortable, but we shouldn't be. 1 Peter 2.11 says this, that we are aliens, that we are sojourners in this world, exiles who don't belong. We ought not to be comfortable here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be able to be around non-Christians. I'm not saying we shouldn't be able to love them and enjoy even their presence. I'm saying the way the world operates, ought not to, we ought not to be comfortable in that. When was the last time that a movie made you cringe because the Spirit of God living in you didn't want the content of that movie in you as well? 
When was the last time you had to turn one off? When, when was the last time that you chose to stop watching a show that you really enjoyed because you felt uncomfortable, because the Spirit was putting that on you? When was the last time that your dating practices made you look awkward or prudish because you were willing to take weird steps to fight for purity and holiness and godliness? When was the last time you spent money in a way that would not make sense outside of the kingdom or the gospel, that looked foolish to other people around you? The point is that you, as the temple, are designed to be, we, as the temple, are designed to be the place where sinful people encounter a holy God. And I'm concerned that too often they're just encountering a mirror reflection of themselves when they look at the church. So what do we do? The answer in this, as I keep moving along, how do I fix this? How do I change this? The answer is to face this way. The answer is to gaze steadily, fully, wholeheartedly at the only one who truly is holy. At the one who gives me my holiness in the first place. You should know this. There's a difference between positional and personal holiness, but they're connected. Positional holiness was given to you the day that you gave your life to Jesus. Declared you to be in the state of holy. You are now holy. Personal holiness is the striving to make sure that my life matches up with what God has already said about me. And the way I do that is by turning from the world and saying, I'm not going to start gauging myself by how far I am from you. I am now going to gauge myself by how close I am to him and how like him I am. I'm going to start looking at him. That's what Paul says here at the end when he says in verse 7, or 7 verse 1, since we have these promises, where do those promises come from? God. Look at all the promises God has given at you. Look at him. Look what he's done for you. We call this a gospel-centered life. Look what he's done for you in Jesus. And then he finishes with this, that we, or we want to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness complete, to completion in the fear of God. You look at God and you ought to live in fear of that one. When you see him rightly, when you see him as he actually is, it ought to stir up in you a holy fear, an awe, something that says, I want that more than anything else, and I do not want to get on the wrong side of that. I do not want to disappoint this one that I'm staring at. And if I don't feel that in me, then there's, there's a chance that something might be off inside of me. Um, I, I've actually confessed three times already in preparing this message to different people, that my problem with this text is I can see the weight of it with my eyes, and yet I struggle in some ways, if I'm honest, to feel the weight of it in my heart. Like, I see how big this is, I see how important this is, and yet I've struggled to feel this cutting conviction that says, I cannot live like this anymore, I've got to live like Him. And I think that if that's true in me, that the problem is I'm not seeing God properly. Haifman, Scott Haifman, in a commentary on 2 Corinthians says, The pathway to holiness is not willpower, but worship. That the way to stop loving the things of the world is to see how much more beautiful and valuable God is. Now, I would say the path to holiness is not just willpower. It's going to be willpower. It's going to be work. It's going to take effort. But primarily... The fuel of all that, the major drive, is worship. 
to see God for who He is clearly. Not, not just something that I've kind of put up that, that looks sort of like God that I want to believe in, but really who He is and to worship Him for that and to delight in Him for that. So what will this mean for you? For some of you, it will mean you need to pray for newly opened eyes to see God in His glory so that you can see you in your sinfulness, so that you would be able to see the areas where the world has influenced you without you even knowing it. For some of you, it literally does mean being unyoked with unbelievers. Like you have some friends that, if you're honest, influence you way more than you influence them, and you need to step away from them. For some of you, it will mean drastic steps to remove the world's influences and temptation in your life. Steps like getting rid of a smartphone and getting a dumb phone because you'd rather have the holiness of God than convenience. Um, For some of you, it will mean, um, or for me, this is maybe simple, but it's the, honestly, I've kind of felt this in me a little bit, it's going to mean singing more. It's going to mean taking more time in my day to reflect on who God really is and sing in worship to Him so that that becomes more and more real in my mind and more and more real in my heart. Because I need to see Him more clearly so that I can see myself more clearly, clearly and so that I can want Him um, with a greater level of desire to want holiness. This is what Paul says, Come out of her, my people. Cleanse yourselves in the fear of God because He's given you these great promises in Jesus. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for me. Let me pray, and we'll wrap up. Dear God, holy God, completely separate and unique, different from all of us, I pray for your mercy to open our eyes. I ask for the Holy Spirit that you have put in us who know you, that that Holy Spirit would open us to help us see Jesus more clearly, to see you more clearly, and to be changed and transformed by that vision. God, I pray that you would show us where we have embraced the world's values, where we have embraced the world's way of living, maybe without even knowing it, that you would show that to us as your people, that you would call us away from that, that you would show us how much better you are than the world, that we might be a holy place, a holy temple for you, where sinful people can come to encounter the living holy God. May your spirit do that work to renew us this semester, to make us like Jesus, to give us a heart for holiness. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, At the end of every session, we always have snacks out here. And so uh, those will be pulled out in a second. I hope you'll hang out. If you're new, we would love to meet you and to get to know you. And we would love for you guys to come on the retreat. I didn't see which way we're pointing. Where's table group sign-ups going to be? If you want to sign up for table groups there, Mm -hmm. Rachel will be here. If you want to sign up for the retreat, here. All right. Awesome.